As we continue to worship this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We will find ourselves back in the epistle of the Apostle John this morning after somewhat of a hiatus as we kind of took somewhat of an aside through the Advent season. Even though we looked at 1 John a bit, we looked at it a bit more topically as we thought about Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Son of Man. We spent some time in 2 John as we uh, thought about this idea of uh, the, the truth of Christ coming to earth, even that which we celebrate on the Christmas season. And this morning we find ourselves back in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to cover verse 28 specifically this morning uh, and just briefly kind of touch on verse 29 at the end. But we'll save that for next time, Lord willing, as we gather. But as we come to the Lord in a time of prayer, as we are absolutely dependent upon his grace for all things, where would we be this morning if it were not for the grace of God? Uh, we pray and trust that his spirit would be among us, that he would teach us, that he would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, that we might receive the grace of Christ through his word this morning. And as we do, let us turn to him one more time in a word of prayer and pray for his blessing upon our time together. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious thing it is for us to be able to gather in this place, to sing of your grace, to sing of your praise, to sing uh, even of our righteous standing before a holy God on the basis of Christ and Christ alone. How many things we have to be thankful for this morning as we think of all the aspects of our salvation. As we think about the reality of our justification and being able to stand before a holy God righteous with our judgment placed upon the shoulders of Christ on the cross. Even as we think of our salvation from our sins and, and not only our, our penalty but also the power of sin that one time held us captive. That we can come here this morning and declare that because of Christ. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And that the very righteousness of Christ through his spirit has been given to us so that we might live as those who are citizens of a new kingdom. Father, even as we think of that great day, even as we sang this morning and was read in Matthew 25, that day of our glorification when you come in all your splendor and glory. What a day that will be. May we look forward to it with great longing and anticipation. Father, would you be with us now as we give ourselves to your word, as we consider the things in 1 John? Would you give us clarity of mind? Would you give us uh, attention as we uh, pay heed to these things? We're so thankful that we can gather here to do so and to do so freely. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we get started this morning, why don't we begin our time just by reading 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. And as we read it, I trust that you will sense the impact and weightiness of this text. As we bring ourselves back into 1 John chapter 2, we realize this morning that we are dealing with a very serious topic and yet also one that should bring joy and hope to the believer. Notice what 
The Apostle John says here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through 29, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. As we look primarily at verse 28, what we see is that this text of Scripture speaks of the coming judgment and the return of Jesus Christ. It speaks of that day when Christ will sit upon his throne in splendor and holiness and judge every nation and therefore every individual. It speaks of the return of Christ to bring final judgments upon those who are opposed to his rule and even consolation to those who look forward to his coming. It speaks of terror for the unbeliever and the false teacher. Remember where we have been so far, even in those passages leading up to this text. But it also speaks of hope for the believer. John sets this day as a motivation both for the unbeliever to repent of his sin, but also for the believer to have hope in that future day and to purify himself even as he is pure. There's an article on the shelf out there in the foyer that I would commend to you. Uh, it's an article on the day of judgment that goes into great detail about what this will look like on that day. And I commend it to you because we won't be able to get into a lot of the detail this morning, but I do want to highlight one aspect in particular. But I commend that article to you. Grab one on your way out. Read it throughout the week. Uh, it's certainly helped me understand the weightiness of this event, but also the, the hope that we have as we trust in Christ. But even as we think of that day, we have to be careful of one thing. We need to be sure that even looking at this great day, we do not lose focus in that which is the focus of that day. You see, the focus is not ourselves. The focus is Jesus Christ. As with everything that John presents, we understand from our passage that our confidence on that day will not be found necessarily in our good works, but in the work of Christ in us and through us. You see, beloved, we can be confident on the day of judgment only if we find ourselves clothed in Christ's righteousness alone. The motivation for obedience is not fear of judgment, although we will be judged. The motivation for obedience is our position in Christ as we make ourselves pure even as he is pure. For if we are found in Christ Jesus, our judgment will be placed upon his perfect work on the cross. As Romans chapter 8 says, For there is now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ 
Jesus. But what we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, is that he begins this text with a command. Notice the command with me at the beginning of verse 28, where he says this, And now, little children, abide in him. That command, abide in him, becomes the foundation for everything that proceeds in the next several verses. For all things, the command is to remain in Christ. You see, beloved, we can do nothing unless we abide in Christ. We will not be able to stand on that great day of judgment unless we abide in Christ. We will not be able to live holy and righteous lives unless we abide in Christ. We will not be able to overcome our sinful natures unless we abide in Christ. You see, Jesus himself is the source of our justification, of our sanctification, and even of our glorification. And to abide in Christ is to live and make our home in the realities of what Jesus Christ has done for us in the past, what he continues to do for us in the present, and what he will do for us in the future. You see, this passage in 1 John chapter 2 is all about the results of abiding in Jesus. And there are several. I want you to notice with me the connection this morning between verse 28 and verse 27. Notice what John does here because it's actually pretty marvelous. Read with me back just a verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, where he says this, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him so that. What John does for us here in verse 27, if you recall from our time in that text, is that he reminds us or declares over us that we have received the Spirit of God and in so receiving that spirit, we identify with the teaching of the apostles. Because the teaching of the apostles is one and the same with the spirit. And so as the spirit is in us and the word of God is taught, we connect ourselves or identify with that teaching. And he says this spirit which was in the apostles and is in us, teaches us all things even to remain in Christ. And then he moves from verse 27 to verse 28, and he gives us all of the ramifications of what it means to abide in Christ. And therefore the title head for the 
the next section is this idea of abiding in Christ. What does it mean, you may ask, or what are the results, you may ask, of abiding in Christ? What we notice in our passage is that we abide in Christ so that we might have confidence on that great day. Verse 28, we abide in Christ so that we might produce righteous living. Verse 29, we abide in Christ as God's children. Chapter 3, verse 1, we abide in Christ so that we might not sin. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And we abide in Christ so that we might love one another. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, and so on and so forth. John has just told us in verse 27 that we are to abide in Christ by the Spirit of God. And that what he does immediately following that is he gives us all of the realities that are true if we abide in Christ. And so what I'd like to do over the next several weeks, Lord willing, is to unpack each one of these realities, starting first with verse 28. If you are following along in the insert in your bulletin, notice with me that first and only fill-in for this morning is that abiding in Christ brings confidence. Abiding in Christ brings confidence confidence. If you'd like to be a little bit more clear on that first point, you can say abiding in Christ brings confidence on the day of judgment. Notice what he says with me again in verse 28. He says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. What we find in this passage is that John directs our attention to the future. He points us to that future coming of Christ, but without losing sight of the present and keeping a firm grasp on the past. Actually, what we learn throughout all the scripture is that we as Christians live ever suspended between what happened to us in Christ in the crucifixion and resurrection and what will happen to us in Christ when he returns. It's almost as if we are to keep our spiritual heads on a swivel, constantly looking forward to what Christ will do and looking back to what Christ has done in order that we might fulfill that which Christ calls us to do in the present. Notice this movement with me in this passage of Scripture itself. From 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 3. Notice how John moves fluidly between the future, the present, and even the past. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, future, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming, future. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, present, has been born of him, past, verse 1, 
chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us past that we should be called children of God and so we are present. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared future, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Notice the apostle here directs us to the future, that we as believers are to live in light of what is going to happen. But he also directs us back to the past, that we as believers are to live in light of what has happened. We are now children of God. There is this constant movement from what we will be to what we are now because of what God has done. And the command in this text, that is to abide in Christ, matters because it helps us understand all of those past, present, and future realities. You see, beloved, everything that we are And everything that we have and everything that we will have is based on Jesus Christ and his work for us and his work alone. We live now in accordance with with what Christ has done and will do. Hear this, beloved. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have been made a child of God. You are righteous even as he is righteous. And if you are found in Christ on that great day, you can be confident in his return. That's the sense of this idea of abiding in Christ. We are to always live in accordance with what is true of us in Jesus. And what we notice in our text are two things of importance. The first is the purpose statement that immediately follows the command to abide in Christ. Notice it with me in 1 John 2, verse 28, where it says this, And now, little children, abide in him. That's the command. Keep yourself in the realities of who Christ is and what he's done for you. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The word, therefore, so that immediately following that command is the Greek word hina. It's a clause that's intended to show purpose or goal or the result of an action. For example... It would be like saying, and maybe many of you guys have heard this growing up, your mom say to you, drink your milk so that, what? You may have strong bones. Right? Have we heard that saying? I I was wondering if that's like a generational thing. I don't hear my wife say that to my kids. 
But my kids, my mom always said that to me. And I, I think it was the commercials that always said, milk gives you strong bones, right? The influence of the culture on a generation. But anyways, that's an aside. The point is this. The purpose cause is to show us the goal or the result of drinking milk. And as the logic goes, we should drink milk because the goal of drinking milk is to produce strong bones. And therefore, if we drink milk, this will result in us having strong bones. What John gives us in this text, beloved, is he gives us the goal or the purpose or the result of abiding in Christ. If you abide in Christ, beloved, you will have confidence in Christ on that great day. And what we notice is that the result or the purpose of abiding in Christ is several fold. There's a distant result and there's an immediate result. And what I want to look at this morning in our time together is that distant result as we think of that great day of judgment before Christ and being found in him as we abide in Christ. Notice it with me again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, stay in the realities of who Christ is, because the goal of staying in those realities is that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Abiding in Christ has a certain goal or purpose. And the goal of abiding in Christ is that we might be confident when he returns. And so the logic goes, just like the milk analogy, if we abide in Christ, we will be confident when he, when he comes. And this becomes motivation for us as believers to remain in the reality of who Christ is and what he has done. But what we notice in our text is that there's also a negative alternative. You see, if we do not abide in Christ, then we will not be confident. But when he comes, we will shrink from him in shame. What the Spirit of God does for us here is he presents before us two absolute realities as he's been doing throughout the book of 1 John. You see, what he's bringing to our attention this morning is that there are two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people. There are those who abide in Christ and therefore are confident. And there are those who turn from Christ, forsake Christ, and therefore might fear judgment on that day. Even as we read, and we will see in a bit in Matthew chapter 25, there are sheep and there are goats. You see, in order for us to understand what John is talking about here, we have to know exactly what John has in mind when he's referring to this future coming of Christ. Notice that John refers to this future coming in two ways in our text. 
He says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, that's the first word that he uses, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. That's the second word that John uses here to refer to this event. Daniel Aiken in his commentary says this about this passage, and you can find the extended comment on your bulletin insert if you'd like to follow along with me as we read. He says this, There are three primary terms in the New Testament used to denote the second coming of Christ. Apocalypsis, which means a revelation or an unveiling, signifies the disclosure of something previously hidden. Epiphania, meaning an appearing, marks the visibility of Christ's physical return. And three, parousia, meaning a coming or an arrival, anticipates the personal return of Christ. He says here John uses the word parousia. This is the only time that he uses this word. This word was something of a technical term and marked the arrival of a king, ruler, or official with open splendor, dignity, and respect. It is a word early Christians frequently employed to distinguish the second coming of Christ and to mark the judgment that will accompany his return. Notice all the scripture references that he gives us. And then he says this in closing. John's use of the word reminds the faithful saints that they can stand with confidence, unashamed at Christ's coming. You see, John uses these two words, that second one most importantly, to refer to that second coming of Christ. The the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor. And as we see this event described throughout Scripture, what we notice is that this is an event which Christians should hope for and non-Christians should shudder in terror. It is that return in which the believer will be vindicated in his undying allegiance to Christ the King, but the unbeliever will face the consequences of his rejection. It's that time when the saints will be rewarded for their faithfulness to Christ, but the unregenerate will be held accountable for their abuse and mistreatment of God's people. You see, beloved, hear this. This is an important point that I'm seeking to make here this morning. When the Bible speaks of the second coming of Christ, it speaks of it as that which the believer should long for and that which the unbeliever should dread. Let me say that again, just because it's so important to this text and what John is seeking to teach us here. When the Bible speaks of the second coming of Christ, it speaks of it as that which the believer should long for and that which the unbeliever should dread. 
Now we see this distinction often in the New Testament. We see it in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 13 and 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 12. We see it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. And we also see it awfully clearly within the gospel of Matthew. And so what I want to do this morning is direct your attention to the gospel of Matthew and how this topic is addressed in order that we might see this distinction between the believer's response to the coming of Christ and the unbeliever's response to the coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, notice what it says with me in verse 27. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, says this, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 29, and everyone, hear that, beloved, everyone, every single person who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Notice over in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 31. It says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jump down to verses 44 through 51. It says, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But... If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This return is also spoken of in that passage which Matt read for us this morning. 
Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34. Notice it with me again. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you, are, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What we see in these texts of Scripture is that there is a dichotomy between those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are not. Those who are faithful to remain in Jesus can look forward to that day in great anticipation. But those who are not, those who forsake the Lord, those who, are, who turn their backs on the pure doctrine of the Word of God and the teaching of the apostles, they, beloved, can anticipate a great judgment at that second coming of Christ. You see, the second coming of Christ is both the great judgment and the great vindication. What we learn about that second coming is that it is a day when the servants of Christ wait for great anticipation because it is the day that their Savior and King returns in all of His splendor and glory. It's the day when we will receive the reward for our service to Christ. It is that day when we were gathered up from all the corners of the earth. It's that day when we will inherit the kingdom prepared for God's servants from the foundation of the world. It's that day, beloved, when we will run into the arms of Christ as children run into the Father's arms. Beloved, it is that day when Christ will say to the faithful, Well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful in little. I will set you over much. But beloved, in that day, those who mocked and derided and abused and flogged and even killed the Lord's servants will scatter in fear. Listen to Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? You see, on that great day, the tables will be turned, and Jesus and his followers will no longer be the least of all things. They will be the greatest. 
In that day, the first will be the last, and the last will be the first. You see, in that day when Christ returns, the whole of society will be turned on its head. As Christ comes to visibly rule as king, and we come and rule with him. You see, in that day, we will no longer be viewed as strangers and pilgrims, but as citizens. John says in our text, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Remember where we are in this passage and the context and the progress of the epistle so far. Remember the passage that we have just left. John is warning the believers of those antichrists, those false teachers who teach and declare things that are contrary to Christ. And he says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were never of us. Verse 26, 1 John chapter 2, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Who are those who will shrink in shame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is all of those who sought to lead God's people astray by their false and pernicious doctrines. You see, what we must understand, beloved, is that their punishment is not idle. That one day the Lord will return payments for those who lived in a way that was contrary to Christ and sought to lead others astray as well. In that day, beloved, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is this day of judgment which Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is reserved for those who teach false doctrine. And therefore, what we learn in our text is that if we are going to be those who look forward to the return of Christ in his kingdom, we must abide in Christ. Abiding in Christ is our only confidence on that great day. Those who forsake him have only judgment to look forward. As we abide in Christ, we show the true nature of our conversion 
and salvation, and we can enter into Christ's presence on that day with an outspoken faith, because our faith and our hope will be realized in Christ's return. Will we come into judgment on that day? Yes, but our judgment, beloved, will be cast on the merits of Christ and his crucifixion alone. And therefore, what the Bible teaches us, beloved, is that we do not have to fear Christ's return, that we can look forward to it in great anticipation. And as we look forward to that day of Christ, it motivates us to service. It motivates us to live even as we will be. It motivates us to to be a witness to those around us of the realities of who Christ is, what he has done, and what he will do. But beloved, it motivates us even more this morning to go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel. For as all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for as all will have to give an account for all that he's done, whether good or bad, only those who find themselves in Christ might have confidence on that great day. Those who forsake or abound, or or who uh, forsake or turn from him, will face judgment and fear and shame. And therefore, beloved, go out and preach the gospel. Preach the good news of Jesus. Take the reality of what we will be and proclaim it to all the nations as their only hope. We sang this morning that God will save whom he will save, yet the promise hope remains that all who turn to Christ will be free of that day of condemnation and therefore declare that truth of the gospel of Jesus and live in light of it as those who are true citizens of Christ's kingdom. Next week as we gather, we will look at that second reality of abiding in Christ that even as he is righteous, so we too should be righteous and live in holiness. Let us pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your grace towards us.